Good morning, everyone. I know it's probably not morning when you're listening to this, but I'm recording this at 6 a.m. And I just wanted to let you know that I know about the audio issues in this episode. Um, I'm a big old dummy, and I had the mic on the wrong setting during most of the recording of this episode, and we were crunched for time, so we didn't have an opportunity to re-record it. But I think you can still hear it. You might have to play play with the volume a little bit more than you're used to. And I apologize for that. But you should be able to hear everything. So keep that in mind. Um, Yeah, sorry. And we'll be back next week with a better sounding episode. What you doing to me, movie? The end is a little bit ridiculous. I was unsurprised to see that. And it's sweet. Oh my gosh, you guys need to go watch it. It's so good. It's so good. I want to watch it again. internet travelers and welcome once again to the before and after show as always i'm your co-host mj smith and i'm your co-host ryan buell and we're here today to talk about ryan say the name uh miss peregrine's home for peculiar children yes uh <laughs> you will be saying the title of this for the most part of this episode because i have a hard time saying the word peculiar it is it, it. it takes a lot of effort <laughs> it takes a lot of effort and i applaud you sir um so but before we get into that have you been watching anything this week yeah i watched uh you you inspired me from the last uh last podcast to watch a documentary so i got into netflix and i found one titled vintage tomorrow and it's all about kind of steampunk and the steampunk culture okay um, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I don't agree with the end result that they were throwing out there. Um, okay. Kind of the worldview that they were. Oh, I see. Uh, they're promoting. Um, but it's kind of fascinating to see kind of the origin of steampunk and the, the the steampunk culture that kind of thrives around that. And these people kind of hoping for a better tomorrow. I guess it would be mm-hmm. way to, sum, to sum it up. And uh, goths that discovered the color brown. Yes. Pretty much that, uh, with more gears yep. and cogs and, you know, a, a, a different um, uh, Elizabethan time? Would that be the right thing? Yeah, um, kind of Victorian era. Victorian era, yeah. It's, it's a fascinating watch. I would definitely recommend checking it out. Um, it got a little convoluted here and there, but overall it was, it was interesting just to gain a little insight into that culture. Um, I find subcultures really fascinating, whether that be steampunk people, goth people, uh, cosplay people, uh, video game people, sports people, you know, just people, the, the, the key thing I've learned is people long for community. Mm-hmm. They long for, to, to belong and to, to have a collective kind of nature. Uh, around whether it's around a, a focus thing like something they like together like steampunk or warcraft or whatever it may be people long for culture and that's just kind of it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch kind of um, as someone who i am kind of part of the nerd culture I'd, i guess you could say so it's it's it was interesting so that's called a uh, vintage tomorrow yeah that um 
everything you said about the subculture stuff makes sense. I actually ended up watching... I've seen a couple documentaries related to that. One of them was about World of Warcraft, which mm-hmm. I have never touched in my life, yeah. but thought was kind of fascinating. And then the other one was... And I belong to the subculture somewhat, um, just as a fan of the books and the movies, but it was about Harry Potter. Mm. But it was about the hardcore people who were, like, in Harry Potter-themed bands and stuff. Like, oh, yeah. Draco and the Malfoys, or the heavy metal band, the Whomping Willows. And it was oh, like, what? Golly. This is a thing? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, anything else? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't watch much else. I think same. Um... I don't think that I watched any... Uh, let's see. Well, I watched Birth of a Nation, but you'll hear me talk about that very mm-hmm. soon. Wife and I have been going through 30 Rock. And That's a class. John Lithgow. No, wait. Nope. Uh, it's Third Rock from the Sun. Yep. Not even nope. in the same universe. All right, sorry. Uh, and we just got to the end of season four... Um, which is apparently my two favorite things in 30 Rock history happen at the end of season four to the point where we binged it. Uh, we don't binge a lot of stuff and we binged it specifically so my wife could get to my two favorite parts. Well, the first one is in the second to last episode of the season where Tracy is trying, it's season four and it's, he's trying to, um, go back to his roots so he can, because uh, he's going to be in one of those, like, Oscar bait, like, movies. It was it was a movie that was making fun of that movie, Push, or uh, uh, Precious. Yeah. Precious. Hard, hard to watch. Yeah, hard to watch, uh, based on the novel Stone Cold Bummer by Manipulate. <laughs> and um, he goes back to his, the projects, and he finds the stairwell that <laughs> led up to his <laughs> old apartment buildings. And he goes on that rant about all the stuff he saw. Um, and then I realized that the episode immediately following that is when Matt Damon shows up. That's right. And I realized that Kristen did not know that Matt Damon was on 30 Rock. <laughs> what a treat. And I got so excited. I was so excited for that episode. And he showed up, and she reacted exactly how I wanted her to. It was there was just like a noise that came out of her, and then she looked at me, and she was like smiling and kind of red, like she was just so excited that Matt Damon was on it. And then also, Matt Damon is great on the mm-hmm. show; he's so funny What's on that it. That line that he says, like, "I want grown up love." Oh, <laughs> there's that, but like when he first get, gets introduced, I think it was on that episode. Where someone's like, someone asked me if I'm a bellhop. It's like, no, I'm a bellhop to the sky. Oh, a doorman. A doorman yeah. to the sky. That's right. <laughs> he was really good in that. Man, he's so great on that show. He's in the he's in the follow up, which is the season five premiere as well, and he's super great on that. That's the one where he starts crying because he's like worried about their relationship, and she like doesn't know how to handle it. And she's <laughs> like, it okay. Don't be cry. And then he's like, I want grown up love. <laughs> I love his rant about the guardians of Gahul. Oh, we haven't gotten to that part yet. We haven't gotten to that part? No. Oh, that's my favorite part. I don't remember that. It's an in flight, it's the in flight movie, and he's seen it like a gajillion times to the point it's playing in the background, and he's at the cockpit, and he's just mouthing the words quietly to himself. <laughs> Oh, it's priceless. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's super hilarious. No, I don't I don't remember that at all. We just watched one today where Paul Giamatti showed up. 
Oh yeah, he's, he's the, the editor. Yeah, he's the editor, and I did not remember him at all. This is like my third time through this series, mm-hmm. and uh, he showed up, and I was like, "What?" And he's like a total douche. <laughs> <laughs> he's like super into hockey for some reason, and mm-hmm. yeah, man, uh, that show is super solid. Yeah. Um, I don't even think I—that's I, one of my favorite comedy shows of all time—and I don't think I even really appreciated how truly great it was until we've been watching this, like. Season three and four, I always said season two was my favorite, but season three and four are great start to finish. Like, every episode has at least one belly laugh from me. Um, Kenneth is so good on that show. He's my favorite. Just, oh man, the way Jack McBrayer plays that guy is so hilarious. The one we watched today, he was working at CBS, but he was like in a cloak trying to like secretly do his page duties at NBC as well. Quit or they fired him? Or they fired him. They fired him, that's right. Yeah. He's like Phantom of the Opera it. Yeah, and we started watching the show because this year was a leap year, and we watched the Leap Day William episode. Oh, that's right. From season five or six. I want to say it's from season six, which is towards the end of the run, because it only lasted seven seasons, and so because they'd been on for six years at that point... They were able to get super weird, and that episode is so bizarre. It's Especially how it ends. So Tim weird. Williams being terrifying. <laughs> uh-huh. So I was like, "Look, I know you haven't seen the whole series, but you need to watch." But this. it's it's leap year tradition to watch the Leap Day William episode, and so we did. And she was just like, "What is this show?" <laughs> She was just, like, horrified and confused for 22 minutes. (laughs) But then she was like, maybe we should start watching this again. And so we... From the beginning. Yeah, and so we started it from the beginning where it's much more normal. But man, that that Leap Day William episode is hilarious. Jim Carrey's in that episode. Yeah, in the... He plays Leap Day William in the TV movie. They, um... They Santa Claus it. Yeah, yep. (laughs) He just, like, gets gills for no reason because Leap Day William has gills. Yep. Because he lives in the ocean. Oh my gosh. What a ridiculous episode. Um, yeah, that's all we've been watching, really. Uh, haven't gotten a chance to peep Luke Cage at all. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's it. So we'll take a short break, and we're going to go to probably a very extended time with Corey Tindall and myself. Can't get enough Corey. <laughs> yeah, talking about uh, Birth of a Nation, the 1915 version. Oh. Yeah, not the 2016 version. So we'll take a short break and bum you out. And then (laughs) Ryan and I will be back to talk about... Uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. What? Chip Chip Pirio. Chip Chip Pirio. (laughs) Isn't it Pip Pip Cheerio? Pip Pip Cheerio. everyone um welcome to the before and after show film school i'm mj smith and as always in film school i'm joined by Corey tyndall Corey, how are you doing sir 
I'm doing pretty good. Uh, all things considering, you know, like yeah. the subject matter today. <laughs> yeah. So I guess there's no uh, beating around the bush here. If you have listened to the previous installments, which I hope you have, mm-hmm. you'll know that this week we're talking about Birth of a Nation and not the 2016 Nate Parker film, the uh, 1915 D.W. Griffith film. Yes. About the Civil War and the Reconstruction era following the Civil War which culminates in the formation of the KKK and ultimately portrays them as heroes and defenders of American ideals. Yes. Yes. Uh, The film was used as a recruiting tool for the KKK from 1920s to as recently as the 70s. I don't know if they... Probably, I mean, I don't keep up with uh, the latest KKK recruiting yeah. techniques. <laughs> so, but I would imagine that the film would have a little bit of a resurgence in that there's a new movie in 2016 with the same title. So, yep. I could see them still using it. Um, that would that information would not surprise me, but it's not information I would go out of my way to find out. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the plot of the movie. It starts in the Civil War or just before the Civil War. And mm-hmm. there are these two families. One is from the north. One is from the south. And they're friendly. And yes. um, then the Civil War breaks out and it's basically brother against brother. And, you know, the north obviously has, for the most part, an anti-slavery bent and the south has a pro-slavery bent. And um, it's kind of the story of how those two families intertwine with each other over the course of the Civil War. And then there's an intermission. And after the intermission, it comes back and is even more about the Reconstruction era that followed the Civil War and how those families affected the Reconstruction um, period of time in the South, specifically in Georgia, I believe, right? Yes, I think so. Yes. So, Corey, what did you think of 1915 Birth of a Nation? It was a wild ride. It was something. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, we know, we knew going into this film that it was going to be heavy subject material. And I was prepared for it. But it was... It was really hard to watch, especially that second half. Man, especially that second half. Like you said, it tells the story of these two families, you know, through the Civil War and then like kind of into, you know, the Reconstruction era. And, you know, the first half of the film is kind of like light jabs. You can obviously see the director, you know. Griffith's perspective is, you know, for the Confederacy and like just even how he addresses some of the, um, you know, officials in. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Movie has a weird relationship with Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, it does. We can talk about that a little bit. So just like how he addresses them. And then the second half is really where um, the agenda starts to get laid on thick. And that that was the part that really got hard for me to watch um i don't know about you but i watched it all in one sitting um i thought about i thought about taking a break but i was just like i'm just gonna power through it like it's already taken up my afternoon so let's just do it 
it's actually, you know, for, I mean, minus the subject matter, it's pretty easy to watch. Like the three hours goes by pretty fast. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, uh, the pacing is really good. Um, really good. And yeah, we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit more about the technical merits of the movie, but yeah, yeah, for me, it was from the get go. Um, I was not down with this movie. <laughs> um, I was screenshotting and uploading uh, certain title <laughs> cards that uh, hit me in a, in a visceral way. Yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about those. I was going to sure wheel back to them but <laughs> yeah um so th- the movie starts out and my first note that i have on the movie just says f that title card yep um <laughs> and so it reads a plea for the art of the motion picture we do not fear censorship for we have no wish to offend with improprieties or obscenities but we do demand as a right the liberty to show the dark side of wrong that we may illuminate the bright side of virtue, the same liberty that is conceded to the art of the written word, that art to which we owe the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. Boom, mic drop. Ugh, gross, gross. When I saw that, I was like, really? Did he really just do that? Did he really just compare the ideals of this film to Shakespeare and even the Bible. Yeah, and here's the thing is arguably he it is there's an argument to be made that this movie like this movie affected cinema the way the works the uh, like the written word had with the Bible and with Shakespeare. Yeah. That's true. And that's the weirdest part. But he he had no way of knowing that in 1915. This is just like arrogance and complete misunderstanding of what the subject matter of his movie is. Yeah, I don't know, like, if in making that statement, if he thought more of like the uh, the information. I mean, now we'd call it propaganda. If he thought that would be more of like the catalyst for like why this movie would be such a, you know, force to like change, you know, things and truth. I don't, do you think he was thinking mainly that, or do you think he was also saying like, I know this film is technically well done. I mean, it talks about the ideals presented in it. Yeah. Like it, the, it comes off as like, hold up, hold up, hear us out. Give me a minute. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's the it's the cinematic equivalent of I'm just saying. Uh, so yeah, so that slaps you right in the face. Yeah, uh, immediately. That's the first thing you see before the movie even starts. And so I was like, yep. oh no, no, thank you. Movie. <laughs> and then it goes on to the, like you said, the Civil War stuff. And granted, it's from the Confederate uh, perspective, and Griffith has a chip on his shoulder about that because he was the son of a confederate colonel mm-hmm. so he naturally is taking their side and kind of lying by, by omission um uh which yes. is apparently <laughs> a common theme amongst movies titled the birth of a nation and <laughs> is lying by omission about how much responsibility the south had in the civil war yeah. um, he also tries like in the first half of the movie kind of tries to paint lincoln as a big government socialist, which is hilarious. Yeah. 
but he it kind of tries to paint that like the only reason Abraham Lincoln was for abol abolition is to grow the arm of the government and to cut off the freedom and autonomy that the South had to secede. Yeah, it was it was a weird <clears throat> depiction of Lincoln for sure. But then later in the movie, they treat him as the hero of the South. And when he gets assassinated, the people in the South freak out because they're like, no one else could bring us together under the name of the Constitution besides Lincoln. To which my response is, don't be douchebags and maybe someone will. Yeah. Maybe the new guy <laughs> will. Yeah, because like when he gets assassinated, I forget what the film calls him. It's just like our best friend or. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I was it does like a complete 180 on Lincoln. It's so weird. I was like, wait, hold up. <laughs> hold up. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was very strange. It was a bit jarring for me. I'm like, what? Well, so. and when 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 Lee surrenders to Grant, the title card that follows it says the end of state sovereignty. The soul <laughs> oh, of yeah. Daniel Webster calling to America, liberty and union, <laughs> one and inseparable, now and forever. And I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I was like, wow. So that's the first half. And that yeah. aside from the first half having weird politics, it doesn't have the racist stuff that you associate with the movie so much. No, which kind of screws with you because I was expecting it to be from the get go kind of all out. And there is some stuff, you know, like there are characters that are clearly in blackface, but it's one of those things where you write it off as the time period in which it was made. And like it, as unfortunate as that is, it was yeah. the status quo. And then the second half kicks off. Civil War is over. Reconstruction begins. Lincoln gets assassinated Black people get the vote and the patriarch of the family from the north sends his one of his uh, basically his right hand man, who's um, a mixed race um, <laughs> uh, uh, mixed with with black and white uh, yeah. down to to be he ends up becoming lieutenant governor, lieutenant mayor. Something, something of power. Yeah, he's. Yeah, he's like, I want to go there and just make sure all my laws and stuff are enforced. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so he sends this guy um, whose last name is Lynch. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> he sends this guy, uh, this mixed race guy whose last name is Lynch down to make sure that that reconstruction's going OK. But it's the South, so they don't really take too kindly to it. They also portrayed Lynch as kind of a sexual predator yeah yeah but they also portray a lot of the black characters as sexual predators yeah and one of the one of the guys one of the sons from the family of the south thinks that they're being wronged by this family from the north and he gets the idea to start the kkk yeah and he gets the idea by seeing children playing like children in white sheets hiding from a black child who they're playing with and, and then, then like he, he gets the idea that, oh, if adults end up in white sheets, we can catch black people off guard because they won't know who's doing this to them. Yeah. And we can scare them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the title card when he gets the idea says the result, <laughs> the Ku Klux Klan, the organization that saved the South from the anarchy of black rule. 
not but not without the shedding of more blood than at Gettysburg, according to Judge Torgy of the Carpetbaggers. So in that just in that one title card, completely arrogant about the formation of the KKK and completely dismissive of the Carpetbagger. Yep. Uh, I was like, wow, wow. I mean, it's like we said, this is where the second half is really where the agenda pushing like mm-hmm. is very evident. Mm-hmm. So there is a there is a character who's in blackface uh, named Gus. Yeah. And Gus starts stalking the is it the wife or the sister? It's it's his it's the former Confederate general. It's like his youngest sister. Yeah. He starts stalking her around their town and she gets really uncomfortable and she ends up falling off a cliff while trying to outrun him. And so that is also part of the inciting incident that leads to the formation of the KKK. And they end up hunting Gus down and uh, killing him. Yeah. Uh, That whole, that whole like sequence of like Gus and him following the, the daughter in the Mm -hmm. woods and everything. I was just like, this I, I feel like that was one of the points in the movie where it just started to like become absurd. I mean, like this whole movie is gross and the messaging, but that was like I think that's where it started to really go downhill. I was like, wow, am I watching like a minstrel show almost? Yeah. Like the way he was acting and the couple title cards they would give him, just like the stuff he was saying. I was like, What? Yeah, sort of a like yes and miss a type of well, yeah you, you know uh quote slave talk yeah, yeah that like, happens i mean they're not a lot of the black people get a chance to talk in the movie um and yep. when they do it is very much in that super heightened uh, like you said minstrel show yeah um style of speech uh that's you know highly offensive there's also a scene where they show you know they show all the black members of the of the state congress now and they're um, we talked about this a little bit off mic, but there's yeah. one guy who's like taking his shoes off and another guy who keeps sneaking drinks out of the bottle and one guy who's eating a piece of fried chicken yeah. on the Senate uh. floor. And then what did you say the title card says after that? It's like, <clears throat> I think there's a title card before the one you're thinking of that says it's like, this is what's become of like the democracy or whatever. And then after that, it cuts to like a shot of, you know, some white people sitting in like the back of the courthouse. And then it says like the poor white minority. Oh my gosh. And I was like, what is happening right here? Uh, Oh man. Yeah. And then, so from there, Lynch decides he's going to marry the daughter of the patriarch from the North. Yeah. So I was going to say like backing up, going off of that point, in the second half, you see like the family of the guy who comes down to enforce the rules of the South. He brings his daughter who the Confederate general met during the war. And so they're kind of courting during the midst of this whole like Gus scenario and him like deciding maybe we could start like a, you know, masked society to like save the South. So he's courting her the whole time. And you see in a couple scenes where they're like, they're clearly in love, but she's like, I can't betray my ideals. And, you know, you wanting to enslave slaves is wrong, you Mm -hmm. know? And so there's a clear depiction of like, she's on the side of the North. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So he uh, intimidates her until she faints. Yep. And then ties her up in order to force her to marry him. Yes. Uh, And then... uh, What happens after that? I kind of lost the plot around that point because it's such a long movie and it's so draining. Um, Well, then, yeah, it's... So he's doing that. At the same time, the Confederate family is, like, run out of their house by all... Oh, the, yeah, the, there's, like, a black militia that kind of forms. Yeah. And they're going around doing raids on white houses. And so the KKK responds by showing up and saving the day and running off the black militia and saving the daughter of this guy from the north um, from the clutches of this evil mixed-race man. Yep, and there's all these, uh, there's all these like nuanced, but you know, very upfront messages. So it's like the Confederate family, they get run out like during the massacre, and they find like this cabin, this mm-hmm. cabin of Union soldiers. So you know, it's like, oh, there's a separation of like South and like you know the North. But then they like have this mutual respect for these men because they're of like the Aryan race. There's some title card about like, oh, but they found like their their common bonds and like the Aryan race and like, cause they tell them about, Oh, there's like, there's the black militia coming and they're destroying our town. And so it's like, you know, the bond of the color of their skin is more powerful than like, you know, the ideals that the union fought for. And that title (laughs) card says the former enemies of North and South are united again in common defense of their Aryan birthright. Uh, Yikes. Yeah, and I was like, really? And that scene played out like it was like a zombie movie. Mm-hmm. Like they're all holed up in the cabin, and it's just all these—I don't even want to say people because the way he portrays the whole black militia is like, yeah, it's like they're like zombies or animals trying to get into the cabin, and a lot of stuff is played for like humorous effect. They'll try to like come through the window, and yeah. the woman will hit them with something, and. Uh, but yeah, but like you said, the KKK shows up to save the other, the daughter, but then they also show up at this thing and like kill all of the, the black militia. And it's just like, yes, we're united, you know, yeah, through the, the power of racism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it fast forwards to the next election day. And uh, oh, yeah, the big victory button uh, at the end of this movie is that the black people leave their house to go vote and lined in the streets are and outside of the doors to their homes are members of the KKK and they intimidate the black people back into their homes so that they don't get a chance to vote, even though it is their legal right now. And yep. uh, that's the big hooray that's the big triumph we're supposed to take away from the movie. And like, that's the feel good ending. Yeah, and the fact that <clears throat> the this relationship that you've seen for most of the movie where this woman from the North has had strong ideals and, like, the belief that all people are equal, basically her ideals get swayed to the fact that, like, oh, you were right, Confederate general who I fell in love with. It's like, mm-hmm. we need the KKK because black people are evil. And, yep. uh So it's yep. basically, like... My my thought process, I thought I was, like, valiant and correct, but I was misinformed, and now I've, like, seen this revelation. I've seen the truth now. I felt like that was, like, very on the nose 
You yeah, know, definitely. Like and end. it actually ends with her wedding that guy. Yeah. Um, it ends with two, two or four of the characters getting married. Yep. Um, and just like white people coming together. And then <laughs> this was the kicker for me, man. There's one there's one uh, title card at the end that says, Dare we dream of a golden day when bestial yeah, uh, shall fall no more. Uh, but instead, it, the gentle prince in the hall of brotherly love in the city of peace. And then it cuts to this very like abstract, almost art house film depiction of uh, of war, like like the of like the 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 uh, the horsemen of the apocalypse war, yeah, assaulting a group of people, and then it fades to that, and then we see Jesus redeeming all these unsafe white people. Yeah, and it, that's the last shot of the movie: is Jesus has come to save the white people from this black scourge. When I saw that MJ, like. And and keep in mind, everybody listening, you hear us like laughing and jesting. It's because like I if I don't laugh, I'm going to cry. Yeah, I, it's, it's like yeah. I was like, how did this happen? So that was tr- that was my attitude for most of this film. But when we got to the part that you just talked about, like literally my stomach like turned. Mm-hmm. I was just like, ah, I cannot believe I. Ugh. So, yeah, I was that was super gross. Yeah, it really was. And. So, you know, for all of this evil, I'm going to call it that because yes, it, it is, is. For, for all of this evil that we see enacted and messaged across in this movie, you know, we watched it because of its historical significance and because, you know, we, we you know, obviously because the, the new one's coming out and we mm-hmm. we don't want to shy away from this, especially given how important this movie is. Um, you know, it established so much about the way movies worked forever. Yeah. That I think it's hard to deny it. Um, it's hard to deny it a spot at the table as much as you don't want it to be there. Um, I think having seen it now, having been on the other side, it's it's a quote unquote good movie. Borderline great. It's a compelling, yeah. it's well put together the action sequences are really well crafted for 19. Yeah, they yeah, they are, especially like all the war stuff. The civil war scenes are incredible. Yeah, I was like, when did they make this movie? As I was watching it, I was like, dang. It's so modern. It feels so modern outside of the like the gross messaging in it. Yeah. It feels so much like a movie that could have come out this last weekend, except that it's silent and crazy racist. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it just like I, I I was like, man, I can't believe this movie ultimately works when all is said and done. You know, one of the things I have on my notes is. Um, the, the towards the end of the Civil War that shows the North coming in and laying siege to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And it's so great. It's such a like exciting thrilling sequence and he sets it to in the hall of the mountain king and it oh it's so awesome yeah it's so well done and he tints it red so it looks like it's on fire that's the other thing he tints the movie um he tints the 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 film stock at certain points so like everything that happens in lincoln's office is this like really washed out looking blue some of it's Mm -hmm. in sepia a lot of the the um 
the siege of, of Atlanta is in red. A lot of the KKK scenes are in red, which yeah. I think is meant to illustrate th- there's there's kind of a line about it in the movie where they mention that it's, you know, the blood of the the blood of the South is what gave birth to yeah. this, the KKK. But from the right perspective, um, which is the not crazy racist perspective, it yeah. looks demonic. Like it looks evil. Yeah. Um, like weirdly. So a lot of the shots of the KKK doing their KKK meetings and stuff and doing their like KKK rituals, like felt so like eerie and gross and creepy and, and horrific. And the red tinting did not help that at all. No, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like, like you were saying, there's, there's some shots and stuff in there where I was like, this is incredible. Like, you know, say what we will, that this movie is crazy racist and it's evil, but like DW Griffith, like knew what he was doing, Mm -hmm. like on a technical level. Yeah, it was, it is incredible. I like, I want to go watch intolerance now. I don't know if I'm, I'm ready to go that far, but uh, <laughs> I want to I want to watch more of his stuff because he's like he's a really good filmmaker. Like, it's yeah, crazy, especially um, when he like considering the fact that he had nothing really to go off of in terms of like any of these skills or like these ideas that are mm-hmm. so just like common now. You know, it's like the idea of like hey, we're going to have a wide shot. We're going to see people walking or doing something. And then we're going to cut to a close-up of something, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and you know, the other thing is this movie is one of the first movies to have a fully orchestrated score that was used with it. And that score is really good, man. Um, yeah. You know, we've we've watched some, some movies that have had some <laughs> questionable scores. That may not have been the original score, but I can't help but think I don't know if the one on Amazon is the original score. It seems like it. Yeah. Either that or it was meticulously. They meticulously crafted a new score for it, but I don't think so. Yeah. Um, There was there. Yeah, there was there was even stuff where I'm like, it fit the mood. It like it fit what was going on. There was even a couple times. uh, I think it was during the Civil War. Like I'd be listening. I'm like, why is a Christmas song playing? And then it would be like, oh, it was in the, the part of the movie that we're watching, it's around like Christmas time, like mm-hmm. when it would have been Christmas. And I was like, Oh wow. So, well, and even like, even the score is kind of racist. <laughs> um, cause it, 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 there's scenes where the black militias are going around, like walking the streets and they're not even doing anything too out of hand just yet. They're just walking down the street and, I don't remember which song it is, but the music that accompanies it is like this horror movie version of a patriotic song. Mm hmm. Um, you know, but it's it's the way they do it is almost like this, the 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 psycho version of it. Yeah. Um, and I was like, man, that's a I can't believe I'm saying it. But, they, you know, to get your super messed up racist message across like that's a really smart choice. Yeah. That's what you're going to do. You're going to have like the 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 iconic theme that's played throughout like, you know, most of the movie. And then like when you have the subject of like this is the evil thing that we don't you know, we don't want here. It's like they have like a subverted kind of like weirdly, you know, it's 
it, it, it's you know it's like harsh to listen to or it's like it's weird mm-hmm. it's like a subverted version of that harmony and so you're like oh i don't like that along yeah. with the the messaging of like we don't like these people already yeah yeah exactly and even i mean the the worst thing in this movie the formation of the kkk is really smart um because he sees the kids in the sheets, surprise the black child, yep. gets the idea for the KKK. The title card comes up saying the Ku Klux Klan frees us from the anarchy of black rule or whatever. <laughs> and then in the next scene, they're just the KKK out on patrol looking for black people. There's yeah. no complicated, like there's no fat on it. There's no convoluted, you know, getting the gang together sequence of okay, well, I'm going to go ask so-and-so because we were war buddies and he also hates black people. And so, <laughs> you know, it's it's just, they it happens. You know, the movie just tells yeah. this, he gets the idea and then in the next scene, it has happened. Yeah. And that's like, that's a really smart way to reveal your information, it, like structurally. Mm-hmm. No matter how bad that information is. Yes. It, it, it That's a good way to go about it. Yeah, and even like if, you know, the, the person who's like, who wants to know a little bit more, the movie does give you a little bit more, but it's in a way that does move the plot forward. So you see that the wives and like the mother of the Confederate general are like making all the KKK uniforms. But then that becomes a significant part of the story because like one of the the Union black spies like sees them doing that. And so like that's a catalyst for like Lynch coming in and. You know, yeah. saying like we need to get them arrested, but it's in a way that like makes sense. You know, it's not just like extra fat. Like, hey, we're gonna show you this montage of like them making all the KKK uniforms, and yeah, yeah. I uh, it's so weird to me that I, I, I. It's not a movie I would watch all the time, but I would see it again in the right circumstances. I would love to see it on a big screen in a theater full of people just to hear them react and see like just to see how a crowd responds to this movie in 2016 i hope a majority of the response would be like how you and i have responded to this film i think anyone anyone in in any major metropolitan area who would go to a screening of this movie would be that way you know if there was a screening in la i don't think you would get too many folks from the la chapter of the kkk there no um, I don't know if L.A. has a chapter of the KKK. I assume it does. <laughs> it's a very populous area. But um, so just by law of averages, I feel like there probably is some sort of a white supremacy uh, presence there. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I feel like I feel like it's different um, than if you were to screen this in Georgia or South Carolina. Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, gosh, I like it's it's. It's impossible to say you like the movie. You can't. Uh, no. But the movie works, and the movie's compelling, and it's exciting, and not just because of its subject matter. Yeah. You know, if you, if this would have been a down-the-middle Civil War story, it would, ju- it would be just as good. Yeah. And I think for, you know, <clears throat> the intent, again, like the intent, like what he wanted to accomplish with this film, it totally does that. I yeah. mean, like, technically, it's amazing, but for the message it wanted to bring across and like show to like the mass audience, it completely it's an A plus. Yeah. Yeah. All the things we're talking about, like how the music is like, 
negative when the subject matter of like, you know, the black people, we don't like them and how it's positive. Like even that whole scene when the KKK comes in to save the day, it's like revelry, like, Mm -hmm. you know, here comes the troops. They've come to save us. All that stuff, all that stuff just enhances this message of like the South is good. The KKK is amazing. They're a force for, for truth and justice and black people are subpar and they've ruined our culture and all this stuff. In all those ways, the film works. It succeeds. And it's technically amazing at the same time. And it's weird for me to say that. I mean, like, I hate it. And it's not a good... It's not a good movie in the sense of the message it's conveying. But in those other aspects, it's... It's a really good film. Yeah, it's, like, flawless, actually. Yeah. Um, Which is so crazy. And, you know... uh... I'm one of those people, I do this less with movies, but I'm one of those people, I really like going to museums, and I I do this thing where if I see something that I, I recognize or I connect to, I just, I get weirdly nostalgic, I guess, for periods of time where I wasn't alive. Um, mm-hmm. One time I went to the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles, and almost cried because I was looking at the handwritten lyrics from Woody Guthrie's notebook for this land is your land. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know Woody Guthrie. I wasn't alive in the sixties. Yeah. uh, Or the fifties, even when he was, he was most active and you know, it it just, uh, there was something about it where it was just like, man, that's a piece of history. Yeah. When Kristen and I went on our honeymoon, we went to Nashville, Tennessee and we went we found ourselves at the Tennessee State Museum, which is this great museum in downtown Nashville. And in this museum, it covers the history of Tennessee from the in ancient peoples who lived there up through the Reconstruction era. Mm-hmm. And Tennessee's called the cradle of the Civil War um, because they're they're pretty they're pretty far north. They're pretty close to the border of north and south. Mm hmm. And so a lot of a lot of the initial invasions happened there. And they have all this stuff left over from the Civil War. We saw a tree trunk that has artillery lodged in it still from the Civil War. And we saw giant, I mean, gigantic Confederate flags that were tattered and battle worn sitting in front of cannons that were used on the battlefield. And we would go around and we would see uh, you would go around and you would see, uh, you know, they would have set up a typical encampment for Confederate soldiers and they would have people dressed in in period accurate clothing. And you could you could press buttons and actually hear speeches that the southern generals gave to their troops to like to rally them. Wow. It's, it's amazing. If you're ever in Nashville, go to that museum. It's great. Mm-hmm. But one of the th- uh, one of the things that we saw also was we saw a real poster from the era for a slave auction. And Ugh. right next to that, there was just a pair of plain white linen pants. And it said pants that belong to an unnamed slave. And I like could not handle that. Like I couldn't handle that. I was staring 
at a pair of pants that were worn by an actual slave. You know, we're yeah, we're pretty far removed from slavery in in our day and age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly wasn't alive for any of it, even Reconstruction. And so just like it instantly made all of that so much more real to me. And that's all I could think about watching this movie is just like that pair of slave pants that I saw. And just like, how could anyone think that was okay to do? And then how could anyone use, use their faith to justify it in such a way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, And I love your illustration about the slave pants. And I felt like that was it was like I had this weird tension watching this film because I, you know, I agreed we're going to watch it for this podcast, for this segment. And it's important for all these technical reasons. And of course, we disagree with like all the messaging. But there was that part in the back of my mind that I kind of had to just walk this tension of I couldn't let myself fully slip too much into you know i mean like obviously i was acknowledging this was real and this happened but just thinking like this this was like the mindset of like the majority of a lot of people especially in the south during the civil war Mm -hmm. because if i let my mind go too much into that realization i don't think i could have gone through this film like i just and there, there was a couple points where I was just like, oh, man, how did how how did people look at other people and think that this was OK? And like you were saying, how could people use their faith, a faith that, you know, has all this emphasis on love and forgiveness and redemption? How could they use that to, like, condemn and like harass and even put other people to death? You know, I just. And so I I had to walk that tension like watching this film. Yeah. You know, I was I was I was aware of it, but I was just like okay, I have to I have to keep going and especially the second half of this film. That was that's when it really started to like wear on me. Oh yeah, it kicks into overdrive in the second second half. Mhm. Yeah, it's a uh, I don't know, man. It's so it's so weird. Um to think about and even you know 1915 is 101 years ago um i yeah. think i said 91 on the last podcast but it's 101 years ago and it's so weird to think of movies as being that old they seem relatively new still um yeah but to think that the, and because they're so new in my mind quote unquote new it was so weird to see a movie hold those like very outdated beliefs mm-hmm Um, because you just don't picture a mainstream movie, at least that has those ideas in it. Yeah. You're just like, oh, that that's from a time gone by. But Mm -hmm. no, but films are they they were part of that time. You know, like we were able to and and I mentioned this on the last podcast, one of the really amazing things about film and a way that I feel like it sets apart from other mediums is like you get to go and experience that. Like you are put into that and you're just like, how do I reckon with this? This was the state of the world. This was the state of, you know, beliefs and the people who lived here. And you just have to, you sit in that and you experience it. You know, whether we're watching something that's, you know, it's 
fictional but based on historical truth or you're in like a fictitious world or whatever, you know, you get to grapple with what's going on. Yeah. And gosh, and that's the thing too, man, is it's, it's like you you do ultimately live in those people's skin. Um, yeah. Through through movies like it's it's I think it shows you someone's perspective way better than any other medium. And that's what I love about it. But Mm -hmm. I think this proves that it's a double edged sword. And, you know, there's that Mary Pickford quote where it was like, this is the movie there that forced people to take the motion picture picture industry seriously. And it's like, yeah, but at what cost? Like the reason why we had to take the motion picture industry seriously is because of the damage this movie did, because this movie resulted in the murder of black people. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so and and I'm and I would still stand up and say this movie deserves its place. It deserves all the accolades and, you know, all the technical, um, you know, awards people lay on it. But it's like you said, it's like people had to to deal, you know, mm-hmm. with like what what was this movie saying and how it was impacting the world around them. And I mean, it's sad that the first movie had such a toxic message uh, that, you know, people had to figure out, like, where do I stand on this? But I am still very thankful to this movie in a weird way for, like, how it has advanced cinema, how it has, um, you know, and I think I mentioned this last time, too, how it advanced kind of, like, the development of, you know, the black community, in a sense, and then, you know, that, that leading to other communities, other ethnic communities to like kind of rise up and have a voice, you know, with their ideas and their stories and, you know, even, even black directors to, to, you know, to, to come up and say like, I want to share like our stories. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is like, regardless of what this movie messages and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's their right to do it. It was Griffith's right to make this movie and there's nothing yeah. more America than that, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think you see the same tension in the Westboro Baptist, uh, stuff. Like it's yeah. not, it's their right to do it and they've never gotten violent. They're the, the, the Phelps family is a group of very well-educated lawyers that know how to operate within the confines of the law maybe to the very edges of it, but they, they, nothing they do is illegal. Yeah. It would not, if you took them to court over anything that the Westboro Baptist church did, it, you wouldn't have a case against them. Yep. Um, and so as long as they do that, like they have, they like have to be allowed to do it, which sucks. Like, I yeah. wish that weren't the case, but that's part of the constitution yeah. and freedom of speech. And, it's like you said, as as much like disgust and anger and just like all these negative feelings that even me, like, you know, as a as a black person watching this film mm. that I had all these thoughts of like this could have like literally like affected people in my my family, you know, like generations back. Yeah, I still have to, you know, it's still like it was Griffith's right to make this film, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like you watch it and you're like, it's amazing that it only resulted in maybe one murder and the resurgence of the KKK, which 
the KKK still a minority group. Like they're still, I mean, yeah. not like an ethnic minority, but they're still yeah. like a minority, uh, like a minority of people hold those views, mm-hmm. you know? And that, I think, I think that's good. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. I wish it was zero people, but you know, as I, do I, <laughs> the, the amount of people that do have those ideals and beliefs versus the people that don't is it's very heavily stacked to the side of people who don't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, almost 100% of the people I think I've ever encountered are in that camp. Yes. Um, like I can't, I can't think of anyone I've known where like, it has been a serious concern about how they react to people who are not white. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, and I'm not old, but 28 years, that's pretty good. Like that's a decent yeah. amount of time to have run into a bunch of different types of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that I haven't run into someone who is like, that movie's great because of its message is like, that's a net positive. Yes. Yes. So uh... at, the, at the end of the day, Corey, should people see this movie? Oh, that's that is that is the question. That's why you guys are listening. That's why you're like, what what do you guys think of it? And as much as my knee jerk reaction is no, it's vile, it's disgusting. You can just take what I say. You know, you can take our discussion, and that can inform you. As much as I want to say that, I feel like if you're anybody who appreciates film anybody who's very into film history i would i would almost say like it it i feel like it necessitates a viewing i uh, you're not you're probably not going to enjoy it you're going to say it goes on way too long but in part of this whole thing that we've done in film school and like kind of seeing like where we came from and the way like you know film and cinematography has evolved I feel like this is a necessary component. You know, I wish it was, I wish it was something else. Like I wish it was like a story of, you know, maybe a couple who fell in love and they <laughs> went on an adventure and there was, there was happy things and people didn't die. I wish it was something like that, but you know, instead we get like a couple that falls in love and it's super racist and people die. Um, I, I wish it was something different, but I feel in the movement of appreciating cinema, you, you can't you can't overlook this. And so, as much as I want to say, don't watch this, skip this. If you really want to understand the evolution of cinema, I, I would say you should. It deserves a watch. Yes, I um, I agree. This movie is evil and disgusting and Mm -hmm. completely reprehensible in its message. Yes. Um, And I can't stress that enough. And I will take every opportunity granted to me to say that. Yeah. On the other hand, if you were a student in my hypothetical film class, you'd be watching this once a year. Um, you know, it, it is a movie that I, if I, if I were a film professor, I would teach doing, and I had an, a standing like intro to film studies movie, like intro to film studies class in college. It's one of the movies I would never change. Yep. I, from my I curriculum. totally agree. I totally um, agree. I think it's required viewing for people who are interested in cinema 
because of what it accomplished, because of the technical marvel of it, because of the super tight pacing and and just Mm -hmm. smart story structure and, you know, the way it decides to get its vile message across is so, I don't want to say effective because, you know, I came out the movie being like, F that. But yeah, yeah, (laughs) it it, it works like it's it's the smartest possible way to get information across. Um, The battle scenes are exciting and compelling and the narrative is actually really tight and the drama between the families is really like well done and felt like the drama is really good too um outside Mm -hmm. of the drama of you know the the racial tensions um the the interplay between the two families is is really good and you kind of get a good sense of who everyone is and that's kind of incredible for a movie from 1915 at one the birth of cinema and two with the lack of sound yeah and so you can't like it's a force it's a it's a force of nature that can't be denied cinematically speaking yeah and it can't it can't be ignored. It has to be seen. Yeah. I think you should only see it if you're, you know, if you're one of those people who just engages with movies on a surface level. Like if if you're just <laughs> like, I'm really excited about Transformers five. Don't see the movie. Um, yeah, you're probably not listening to this segment if yeah. you're. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, th- maybe there's a cross section of people who's like, I love Hitchcock and Michael Bay. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you're if you're one of those people who does love the full spectrum spectrum of film. I think I think you do have to watch it. Um, And if you if you want to be educated and you want to be informed on how cinema works, you definitely have to watch it. Yeah, Um, I think I think any. Like, I feel like I feel like just now because I've seen it, it has legitimized me more as a film critic than anything else I've ever watched. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it is one of those movies like when you start getting into film and you start get you know, you realize oh i'm what they refer to as a cinephile i like movies a lot it's something i'm talking about i could potentially have a podcast about this or a website where i review it's a movie whose name gets thrown around a lot for obvious reasons yes but it's not a movie that a lot i i i would argue that a lot of people in the business now have seen um Mm -hmm. and i think if you do you kind of have a leg up on your competition maybe i'm just saying that to puff myself up because i feel uh i feel empowered um having seen that like it's this weird badge of honor like i am one of the people who has seen birth of a nation yeah Uh, but at the same time i think it educated me like i think i learned stuff from this movie yeah i i i totally did you know like we said the message is evil it's all like, you know, it's vile content, but the I learned I learned like a lot of how films are put together. I learned like how they got their messaging across. Like this film has a lot to teach us. And I think in the whole grand scheme of things, like as we've done film history, you know, like mm-hmm. film school, it has really, and again, this isn't like for us to be like, oh, like we're arrogant. We know so much about film. I definitely feel like it has helped me mm-hmm. contextually looking back and all the stuff I know about film. So like when I get into a conversation with somebody, I tell them like, hey, I'm pretty into movies and I like cinema and stuff. And, you know, some of the people are like, oh, you're just a critical guy. and You just like to say everything sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you never get that, MJ. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I have more legs to stand on Mm -hmm. because having started at like the foundation of film like the inception of film and like coming up to where we are now even watching birth of a nation we've seen the the evolution of like what makes you know a good film 
And a lot of the modern techniques that we see in our films now every day when we go to the theater and stuff came from this film. Yep. And you can see it. Like it's not it's not even that you have to dig that deep for them. Nope. They're just there. Yep, like, it's, it's there. Plainly obvious immediately. Like, oh, I've seen that in literally every other movie yep. I've seen. Yep. Especially us coming off like watching all these silent films and mm-hmm. you know, we've essentially been watching like precursors, but some of these would be like contemporaries, you know? They weren't like way before this film, you know, that we're right here at the start. And so it's very apparent. Yeah, I mean, Chaplin has that quote. He was the teacher of us all. And like, yep, like, having, yeah, I kind of scoffed at it in the last episode. And now having seen the movie, like, yeah, absolutely. I see his influence on Chaplin's movies before they even formed United Artists. I see his influence in the way he directed those action sequences in Buster Keaton and the way he framed stuff in the general. Um, mm-hmm. you know, also that movie does also have like a pro South bent to it, but yeah, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it also like a lot of the stuff that Keaton does in that, in the general Griffith established 10 years earlier in birth of a nation. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just, it, it, it's true. It's just true. Like the thing is you have to, when stuff is objectively true like that, you just have to accept that it's true. Yeah. And that, and it's a movie that you just have to accept on a tech, on a mechanical level and a technical level. It's on a structural level. It's true. Yeah. Um, regardless of how false its message is, it's true. Uh. <laughs> so this is, this is the meat of the episode this week. Uh, and we kind of intentionally truncated the rest of the episode um, because we wanted to talk about this. We think it's important. Obviously mm-hmm. we have a lot of very strong feelings about this. Yes. And I hope you guys have learned something. Um, I don't know how many of you will, but I, I hope some of you do go watch the movie. Um, I know that several people got in contact with me cause I was, I was live Facebooking kind of a lot during yeah. the movie. A few people got in contact with me like, Hey, where can I see this? Uh, can I borrow it when you're done? Oh no, it's public domain. Like you can just kind of find it. You know, there's, there was way more interest of people and maybe it's because they need a leader to be like, Hey, I'm watching this racist movie. And then they didn't feel so bad. Having like, yeah, it's like coming come in to join the conversation. me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, I hope that it does spark an interest in you and you do see it because I really want to know what you guys think about this movie. If you think we're giving it too much credit just because it is old or, what but i think i think you will be surprised at how you react to this movie because i certainly was yeah especially if you're looking at it with any any of the things that we've learned through film school Mm -hmm. yeah you're definitely going to say like the message is gross but technically man it is uh it's amazing yep it's a masterpiece Corey, do you have anything else to say about (laughs) birth of a nation uh no i i feel like we've said it all i'm sure we could we could you and i could go back and forth for a while but yeah i think we've said the meat of what we wanted to say yeah i agree um so we'll be back in two weeks and Corey, i believe you're up finally yes i am yeah um and so we'll be talking about an element of film structure uh rather than a specific period of history (laughs) what's that 
I said, you know, we'll we'll be talking about some some film structure as opposed to racism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, guaranteed, probably one hundred percent less racism in the next yes. set of uh, before yes. and after show films, <laughs> so that I can bring us right back to it in the following episodes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, so we'll we'll take a short break and we'll get into myself and Ryan Buell talking about Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which is a crazy juxtaposition between what Corey and I just talked about. But yeah. that's the movie we're doing this week. So enjoy that. <laughs> hope you enjoyed that very uh sober edition of the before and after show film school um as i'm sure we've stated i'm glad i watched it uh it's not something i necessarily need to see again in my life but i think it's an important piece of cinema and i think it's worthy of uh evaluation and consideration and if you want to hear more about that or read more about that this week and next week, I'm contributing to the real world theology. Um, I'm contributing an article about that that you can read probably by the time you're hearing this. It's about how um, people of faith should react to the 1915 birth of a nation. And then next week, and I'll plug this again next week, next week I will be on their podcast talking about the 2016 nate parker version of birth of a nation so uh i went from zero to 60 on birth of a nation in about two weeks uh which i don't know how to feel about but (laughs) but whatever uh i guess uh you know it's it's if you like my writing you can find you can find it over real world theology that's r-e-e-l worldtheology.com and i'm sure it'll be somewhere near the front page uh if you're listening to this close to the time of release and uh, while you're there, check out some of the other stuff. I've been involved with them kind of since the beginning of summer. I wrote a piece about horror movies at the beginning of the summer that I'm pretty proud of. You can check that out there. And they have they just have good contributors. Um, you know, I know they're all from a Christian perspective. And those of you listening may not necessarily ascribe to that faith. But they have just really talented, really solid writers, which is... I think saying something for uh, Christians um, because <laughs> yeah, the, God you, is not dead. Exists. Yeah, because based on the media we put out, uh, quote we, um, <laughs> the media we put out, you wouldn't expect us to be eloquent in any fashion. But there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are some of us. Um, yeah, so check that out. And uh, now we're going to talk about. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I really like that you say it that way every time. <laughs> so this movie is the new Tim Burton movie. It's being distributed by 20th Century Fox. I actually thought it was a Disney movie until right before we started recording. And it follows the story of a kid named Jake. I don't know, generic white kid name. Yeah. Um, it's. I'm going to go ahead. I think it's Jake. Maybe it's Jack. Who cares? <laughs> it's it's a... Uh, it's a story about this kid who finds out that he is connected to this kind of strange orphanage mm-hmm. and realizes that the 
the kids and the uh, the 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 proprietor of this orphanage. That sounds weird to call them a proprietor. Uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but the proprietor of the the guardian, the guardian, um, yeah, the the headmistress, I guess, yeah, um, is also she has special powers, and so do the kids who usually reside there. And Jake, Jack, uh, John. Jingle, Jingleheimer <laughs> Schmidt. Yeah, he he finds out that he is also uh, one of these special kids that has powers, and it's kind of him discovering that. And then Samuel L. Jackson is there trying to eat them or something. I'm not really sure. <laughs> he's a big he's yeah he's he's like the that. villain uh, who is also someone with special powers, and he's got an army of Slendermans. It looks like that yeah. the creatures look a lot like Slenderman, um, but also the house is caught in a time loop during World War II. Yeah, for some reason. So I don't actually know a lot <laughs> about the movie. It's like I said, it's from Tim Burton. I guess before we get into our expectations from the movie, Ryan, what what kind of a relationship do you have with Tim Burton? He can be kind of divisive. Um. I tend to enjoy most of his movies. They are... For being a guy who kind of promotes being different and thinking outside of the box and very much kind of a guy who lives in a fairy tale and and hates the the status quo, and that's a a visual reference he does throughout most of his movies. People who are quote-unquote normal live in square, very, Mm -hmm. you know, simple houses, but the more interesting people live in, like, twisted caverns. Yeah. I mean that that's just his shtick. Um, and I can understand if you see that you're like you're doing the same movie over yes. and over. You know, the, the I've heard a comedian say what what makes a great Tim Burton movie? Whole bunch of white paint mm-hmm. or white makeup, uh, crazy wigs and something else. You know, it's 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 pretty his movies can be kind of predictable in terms of the aesthetic and kind of the the gothic fairy tale kind of thing because mm-hmm. I mean, he got his his big start i believe was batman yeah i think that's kind of what put him on the map yeah um, well peewee's big adventure was his first feature oh, moving. yeah so he, he's known for doing kind of the oddball kind of movies um but in general like, like i love nightmare before christmas mm-hmm. uh I like edward scissor hands scissor hands um i haven't seen ed wood um, but I generally like his stuff. Like I think he's a, he's a decent storyteller. Yeah. Um, uh, but this one doesn't strike me as a typical Burton film. Like I don't think he'll have the same kind of tropes that mm. we've seen before, just based off the trailers. I could be wrong. Yeah. But it seems like he's sticking more to what because the the Miss Peregrine Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Got to keep with the theme. Um, is based off a series of books. Yes, yeah, it's a YA adaptation, which are yeah. pretty popular these days, so it yeah. makes sense that you would want to adapt to these. And this seems like it would be right up his alley. Um, it does kind of smack a little bit of, basically, X-Men, but in a older time period. Yeah. It's pretty much, you know, peculiar, might as well be calling him a mutant. Yeah. Um, but it looks like he might play a little bit against type for himself a little bit here. Like, I don't think it'll have... I think the weird aspect, which probably attracted to him to it, was the children's ability. You know, and if you watch the trailer, you see mm-hmm. there's some peculiar, pardon the pun, kids in this, and kind of what their abilities are. And I think that plays right into his wheelhouse of beautifully weird. Yeah. I think that that'll, that plays to him, but that's my relationship with him. I, I generally I like his stuff. 
Yeah, I usually try to see everything he does. Um, less so in recent years, although I did find myself uh, seeing Dark Shadows in theaters for some reason. Mm. Um, not one of his best. Uh, a movie. Uh, this is the second time I, I tell this story on the YouTube show this week because we're covering Nightmare Before Christmas over there. Um, I bought popcorn at that movie so I wouldn't fall asleep. <laughs> I bought I bought a snacktivity, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it worked. I didn't fall asleep during it, but man, did I not give a crap about that movie. Mm. And I I do like a lot of what I've seen from him. Big Fish is one of my favorite movies of all yeah, time. I love that great father son. Yeah, story yeah, uh, super outside the Burton box while still kind of playing to his strengths. Yeah. And that one's also based off of a novel. Yes, uh, I actually was so obsessed with it that I read the novel as well. And the novel's decent too, but there's something about that movie. Like yeah. Burton just really nails that that movie. Um, that's my favorite movie he's ever done. It's so good, and you know, part of it is Ewan McGregor is great. Yeah. Um, but also Billy Crudup is great I, as the son, and Albert Finney is great as the older version of Edward Bloom. That movie's just great. It's yeah. just a great movie, full stop. And you know, I like the original Batman, and I think we owe a lot to him mm-hmm. um, for that. I like Edward Scissorhands. I like Ed Wood. It's a little too long. Um, the lost episode of this podcast talks about uh, Ed Wood, which you will never hear. Because um, <laughs> that's why it's the lost episode. <laughs> and, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, I like. I actually really like The Corpse Bride. That's a good one. I think I it's a wonderful theater. movie. I saw it in theaters yeah. two or three times. Yeah, that me too. really good. Me too. It's really captivating. Mm-hmm. Um, the animation is really, really beautiful. Yeah. Like It's so well done. And the musical score in that is, mm-hmm. is quite hauntingly beautiful. Yeah, that scene where he plays the piano. Oh, that scene. It's so good. And, yeah, I think... I think he has two modes, though. I think he has wildly original and then self-parody. And so I think on the Wildly original side, you have, like, the Edward Scissorhands and the Beetlejuices. Oh, Beetlejuice is one of my favorite horror comedies ever. I love that movie. Yeah. Um, and then on the self-parody side, you have, like, an Alice in Wonderland. Some would argue the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Johnny Depp. I happen to enjoy that movie. You do? I yeah. Just, I just recently saw that one because... And then the in the event of Gene Wilder's passing, mm-hmm. I had ne- never seen the Tim Burton version. Mm-hmm. And so it was on Netflix, and I watched it as a lark. It's interesting. Yeah, it's a lot darker. It is a lot darker. Which is saying something. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did not care for Johnny Depp's choice of mm-hmm. how to portray it, but I did like that you got more of the original novel. Yeah. Like, they, they didn't rely on what came before. They mm-hmm. said, well, this is the novel, we're going to go that route. I, I did like that. I think um, that's one of the reasons I liked the movie, is because they didn't try to, you know, he tried to do something different with the same story. Yeah. Um, as much as he could within that within that framework, you know? Because it, it would have been really easy to just remake Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. But he didn't, and I appreciated that. Also, that scene when all the puppets catch on fire is hilarious to me. <laughs> that was a creepy scene. Yeah. It was creepy, but man, I remember just being like in tears in the theater laughing at that. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, but I think I like it's one of those movies that's a little indefensible where like you could come at me with a bunch of arguments as to why it's bad and I would just go, "You're right, I don't care." Yeah, I you still know. Yeah. Like it, yeah. Yeah. Um some movies are like that and and so Tim Burton, he's he's hit or miss for me, but I always kind of want to like him. Yeah. 
That's my default. Like, I always want to like a Tim Burton movie because I think he's, I know he's capable of doing great stuff. It's whether or not he wants to. Yeah. And in this one, I think, one of the things I talked about on the YouTube channel this week is I think he hits a reset button every few years where he does something that's a little off the beaten path for him. So, like, in 2005, he did Big Fish, and it was a movie that definitely played to his strengths and had some fantasy elements to it, but it wasn't outright weird or bizarre. Yeah. Um, and then his follow-up to that was Corpse Bride and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Corpse Bride is great, and I really like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And... Then it kind of got into the Dark Shadowsy area and, and, you know, the more self-parody stuff. And then in 2014, he came out with Big Eyes, which is that biopic about the painter woman starring Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz, which got decent reviews but didn't do super well. Um, And I actually still haven't seen it, but it seemed like that was a reset button for him. You know, it's kind of just a straightforward biopic about this woman who did these paintings and her husband kind of took all the credit for them. And it seemed like there were some fantastical elements where the the kids that she painted kind of came to life and spoke to her, maybe. Mm. But really not as bizarre as some of the Tim Burton-y stuff that we've come to know from him. Yeah. And it seemed like that was his reset button, uh, especially with Miss, Miss Peregrine um, and, and this source material. I remember seeing the cover for these books when they first came out, and they're really eye-catching. They are. Um, that I've never read any of them, but I remember seeing them at a Barnes and Noble and just being like, these are really interesting looking books, you know, like yeah. they, they, they're, they're really, really attention getting. Yeah. And I like that. The kind of the old school photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like it almost could be a horror yeah. novel because you're just like, they, those, those kids look creepy. What yeah. is this about? This doesn't look like a young adult novel. This looks like a Stephen King novel or something like that. Um. Yeah, and so I think I think I understand, like you were saying, the appeal for Tim Burton for this. Mm-hmm. As far as how, how I think it'll go down, and we're actually, um, this tends to be our beginning of October uh, MO. We're actually reviewing this movie a week after it comes out, mm-hmm. um, mainly because the release is this upcoming week. One, I'm already talking about one of them on another podcast. And two, there's just nothing else coming out, really. Yeah. Um, the, the beginning of October tends to be a bit of a lull. And so we're, we're reviewing something that's already been out for a week. Um, so it'll be out, it'll have been out two weeks by the time you hear our thoughts on it. And it's got decent reviews. Uh, it doesn't have great reviews, but it's, mm-hmm. got, it's got decent reviews. People, people do send, either tend to be really liking it or really hating it with no in-between. Mm. Uh, I've heard that the movie has some pacing issues, but that's kind of Tim Burton. Yeah. It's all, he doesn't... He's got a really good sense of style. Yeah. You know, I think... I think that's something you can't argue against. Is like every one of his movies has a style to it. Um, whether or not the movies work as movies tends to be a little rockier. Yeah. Um, but with this, it seems like there's something... In there, there's something that could work in here. So honestly, I'm kind of expecting to feel like I did in Magnificent Seven, but I might end up liking it a little bit more than Magnificent Seven because I'm expecting it out of this. Yeah. In that, I think that the movie will be okay at best, but that there's a good movie hidden in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, what do you think, Ryan? Um, 
I'm kind of middle of the road with it. Like I, the premise I find interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the idea of a young, you know, the the protagonist Jake. I think we're we're calling him. Uh, from what I can tell, a guy kind of whose life is aimless, doesn't see himself as very special, and then finding out he's actually a, a guardian, a protector of these 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 children who can't defend themselves. That theme that plays for me. Like that's a theme I can get behind. Um, but I was just thinking about this. I don't know if Tim Burton is real good at character moments. Yeah. Like, I don't think he... That's not his forte. Like his, his forte is the scene, the mood, and yeah. kind of the overall story. But when it comes to individual characters and kind of have good emotional impact and and that, I mean, outside of maybe maybe Edward Scissorhands and yeah. kind of the, the emotional drama you kind of get from that character's journey, I don't really know if that's his forte, so I don't know if that'll... I don't know if that'll be conveyed well in this, but I'm I'm feeling like I, I, I've been wanting to see it since I heard about it. It looks interesting. I'm I'm fascinated by, you know, the X Men like characters yeah. being there and, yeah. and the weird stuff that can go on there. And I like um, Eva Green. Yeah, I think she's I think she's a good actress. I do too. I think she's a little on the strange side. Yeah. Um, but I, I, overall, I think she's a good actor, so I'm excited to see her performance. I, she, that woman has so much goodwill from me for doing Casino Royale. Yeah. She's so good at that movie. She was the first intelligent Bond girl. Yeah. Um, she, like, I will, I will go out of my way to watch an Eva Green movie because of Casino Royale still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm... <laughs> I think it'll be better than Magnificent Seven, which uh -huh. is those who, who heard the last one I wasn't a big fan of. Uh, I think it'll, it'll be better than that, but just kind of have to wait and see. So my question on that is, do you think it's an expectations thing, though? Because you expected mm. Magnificent Seven to be pretty good and you're just expecting this to be okay? You know, that could be it. That could kind of have, a, you know, it's, it's something I, I, don't, I don't think about a lot, but that could very well have a huge impact on how I interpret the movie. Mm -hmm. is you know for the first one I had huge expectations and it didn't meet those so maybe that kind of colored how I viewed things so with this one it might be the same um, but the other thing is you know when I went saw Suicide Squad my expectations were rock bottom uh -huh. based on everyone's review oh and yeah 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 and then it came in came out loving it and right you could say there's a bias there because Harley Quinn's a mm. personal part of my own life and and all that but you know, I, I I'll concede that there might be some expectations that would that would uh, paint the movie in, in a different light, but um, but also this one is a lighter movie. Yeah, like, it's not a huge blockbuster. Yeah, um, and it's more Harry Potter than yeah. other. You know, where it's looks like it'll be a, a decent adventure and and uh, and well done. I think. Yeah, I I. It, I kind of agree with you. I like. I actually kind of like the almost like the goth kid version of the X Men. Yeah. I, I like that aesthetic. Like, I, I like the little girl with the mouth on the back of her head. I think that's cool. I like the creepy twins. I think mm. they're cool. My understanding is that we don't get a lot of them. Like, all, they're the most interesting characters of the movie, and they're not the main characters. Mm. The Jack kid looks so boring. Yeah. And I like that actor. Me I too. Like the, the kid actor. I think he's he's a decent actor, but yeah. he did he did seem a little bit on the bland side. Yeah. Like his reactions to things were kind of like oh, hmm. 
Hmm, Which is crazy because that kid was in Hugo and his reactions in that movie are so great and so full of wonder and joy. Granted, he was a younger kid, Mm -hmm. but... You know, he. I think he's got really good eyes for reacting. They're big and they're super mm-hmm. piercing blue. And yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's... It was amazing in the boy with the striped pajamas. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Really, really good in that. Yeah, yeah. So I know he's capable of doing better work than it looks like he's putting in here. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I guess. Yeah. Uh, if anything, I think it'll be a movie that. I think it'll be my Warcraft in that. Mm. I think the people who really liked Warcraft also get a lot of the criticism for it. But they come out going, I really do hope there's a sequel because I think they can do a sequel better. Mm. And I think that's how I'm going to end up feeling about Miss Miss Peregrine. Yeah. Because I'm not sure how much I'm going to like the original, but I like the premise and I like the characters that are presented in the trailers. Uh, with the exception of the main people... Uh, and once again, with the exception of Miss Peregrine, I actually, I think Eva Green looks really good in the movie. Yeah. Um, that I think that if they did do the whole series of books, I don't know how many books are in the series. I think there's only three. Okay. That I, I kind of would like to see them do all three of them, maybe. I don't know. Hmm. Has it been doing well so far? Like box office wise? It won the weekend. Okay. So it's been doing decent, and I think it'll probably win this weekend because its only competition is going to be Birth of a Nation, which is rated R. Yeah, um, not a huge population drawer. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's <clears> the thing is R-rated movies just don't do as well because less people can see them. Like, yeah. that's that's just yeah. economics, you know? It's Miss Peregrine is a PG movie, you yeah. know? So you could take your kids to it. Um, and so whole families are going to go. Um so yeah, I think I think we'll see. I think Tim Burton has just he I, I think he kinda nailed the style. We'll see how the rest goes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um one of the things that I don't like about him is his CGI tends to be shoddier than it needs to be. Yeah. And it looks like the same in this. There's like that squirrel that's CGI that looks like garbage and like she doesn't look that great when she turns into the Peregrine Falcon. Yeah, it doesn't Yeah, that's that's never really been his forte. Yeah. Which is crazy because he's done these like great practical and like stop motion looking things like mm-hmm. I mean, he directed Corpse Bride. He he didn't direct Nightmare Before Christmas, but he did, he did direct Corpse Bride, and that looks amazing. He directed Beetlejuice, and I think the Sandworm still looks awesome in that movie. Yeah, and like the dope. the scene where they like they elongate their faces or whatever, yeah. uh, I think that looks amazing. And so it's just like, well, how have you not evolved with this technology? You know, yeah. I think that's a big criticism for Alice in Wonderland. The movie looks like garbage. Yeah, the CG really is kind of crappy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know why he's never been able to fully get there with it. Uh, mm. It doesn't make sense to me. But I like Tim Burton. I think I th- I'm just rooting for him. I think that's that has a lot to do with this. <laughs> rooting for him to do well. And... Yeah, yeah. I because I think he can still make good stuff. Like I think there's if he wants it, I think he has a space still. Mm. You know, and he hasn't seemed that interested in it lately. Mm. But I don't know. I don't know. I think I think he, but it also never really seems like he's coasting either. You know, it seems like he tries, but maybe not as hard as he should. Mm. I don't know. Kind of resting on his laurels a little bit. You think? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and maybe, like, I'd like to see him get into comic books or something. That'd be cool. Maybe do a, a Sandman yeah. comic book. I think that'd be right up his alley. Yeah. Or even, like, a, a Doom Patrol reboot. Yeah. That would be dope. Yeah. I would love to see that in a movie yeah. format. Or an Inhumans run. Mm-hmm. I'd give, yeah. Heck yeah. Give Tim Burton the Inhumans. Get him to direct the movie, man. Mm-hmm. I would watch the crap out of that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that, that would be, be awesome. awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I just think... I just, I, I'm just always rooting for that guy, you know? Um, I have fond memories of seeing his movies in theaters when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I remember seeing Batman... I remember seeing Edward Scissorhands. I remember seeing Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, I remember seeing Mars Attacks. Uh, unfortunately, I remember seeing Planet of the Apes. Oh, that was a bad one. Yeah, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Do you have any other thoughts on Miss Peregrine? Uh, no, I, I hope it's good. Um, and but we'll just uh, the the uh, what is it saying? The test is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. <laughs> The test is in the pudding. You have 30 minutes to go. <laughs> but first you have to eat this tub of pudding. <laughs> yeah. That's the logically, that's where you lead you. Um, but yeah, I'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at MJSmith891. Ryan's on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, you can find the show on Facebook, the, the Before and After Show Facebook page. Click like over there. You can find our YouTube show over on YouTube. Go search the Before and After Show. Each week, myself and Michael Morey uh, take a different older movie that's uh, usually uh, loosely connected to the movie that we're talking about on the podcast. This week, it's The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's a movie I've seen a bunch. Mike has never seen it. And so, yeah, so we're talking mainly about that. Um, We're kind of switching roles from our last set of episodes where he had seen Dr. Strangelove and I hadn't. Um, And so you can hear us talk about Mike's expectations for that movie over there. Um, You can find everything we do at thatrealperspective.blogspot.com. That's that R-E-E-L perspective.blogspot.com because movies. And uh, you can find, like I said at the beginning of, of the the expectation segment, you can find my article about Birth of a Nation 1915 version over at realworldtheology.com. That's R-E-E-L, worldtheology.com. I see you're sensing a theme here. <laughs> and then next week I will be back on this podcast to talk about uh, our, our final thoughts on Miss Peregrine's Home. And then I will also be on the Real World Theology podcast to talk about the new Nate Parker version of Birth of a Nation about Nat Turner and his slave rebellion and all that stuff. Uh, That happened because Mikey Fissel, the guy who runs Real World Theology, approached me because I live Facebooked some of the stuff I was seeing in Birth of a Nation 1915. It was bonkers. And he was like, I was completely enthralled with your post (laughs) last night. You have to come and you have to talk about this on our Birth of the Nation episode. And so I'm going to be on the podcast talking about that. Uh, Go read them. They're really good. And until next time, go watch 30 Rock.
Makana-san. Makana-san. <laughs> <laughs>